Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. I remember a story from when I was a pastor at a church in Pennsylvania. I was just in my young 20s. There was a young woman named Lena, and I've changed her name just because I didn't get her permission to share the story. But she grew up in the church uh, with a family that loved God and was a part of the church, but it didn't mean a lot in her life. She just grew up in it, and it didn't change much about her. And when we got to know each other, I was the music pastor there, and there was a song that we introduced at the church called There Must Be More, which was an early song out of the Vineyard Movement by David Ruiz. And it said, Lord, I groan. Lord, I kneel. I'm crying out for something real because I know deep in my soul there must be more. Lord, I'm tired. Yes, I'm weak. I need your power to work in me, but I can't let go. I'll keep hanging on. There must be more. And then the chorus cried out, river flow and fire burn, there must be more. And God used that song in Lena's life, and it gripped her heart and became her honest prayer. There's got to be more. And when she became an honest seeker, God really met her powerfully, and her life changed forever. And it just reminded me, as I was studying the text for today, how we all long for more in our lives. We long for answers to the questions that we ask in our innermost being, like, why am I here Why do I exist? Why are we all here? What is the point of all of this? And in John chapter 7, the text we're looking at today, we see it beautifully answered. And I'm praying that it calls calls us to something higher, that our eyes are going to look upward into that more that we all long for. And you can turn to John chapter 7, verses 10 through 24 in your Bible or on your phone. It'll be on the screen too. The title today is Living for God's Glory. Jesus, before I read the text, he's responding to the unbelief of his brothers who were trying to get him to go into a public place. We studied this last week. There was a big feast and all the people were gonna be gathered. And they said, Jesus, go make yourself known there. And he said, it's not my time yet. And they were kind of mocking him and pushing him. They didn't believe. But then we see what happens starting in verse 10. And it says this. However, after his brothers, that's Jesus' brothers, had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision... 
though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Lord, we humble ourselves in your presence today. And by sitting here with your word open before us, we're sitting at your feet and saying, teacher, will you teach us? Will you speak life into our innermost being? Conviction, hope, truth, salvation, healing. We're here to hear from you, Lord. So give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we see at the beginning, it's really interesting, we talked about God's timing last week, and Jesus actually did eventually go to the festival like his brothers wanted to, wanted him to, but look what it says in verse 10. He did not go publicly, but he went in secret. And this is just really interesting because we, we see this theme in all of these chapters almost that we've looked at. Jesus does things that are highly counterintuitive. Here he is, he'll heal, he'll heal someone, and he'll say, don't go tell anybody yet. Just, just keep it kind of quiet. I'm like, what? He should tell everybody. We need everyone to know Jesus is the Savior. Or he shows up at a place, and he could just, while everyone is gathered in one place, he could talk to everyone. But instead, he shows up at first in secret. And then look what it says in verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about Jesus. So they were saying all kinds of things and everything in between. You know, he's a good man. He's a liar. He's deceiving people. The leaders were threatened by Jesus. You see, in this text, they start accusing him of being demon-possessed. And even though this crowd here says, who's trying to kill you? We know from the chapters that we've already studied and the verses we've already studied that people were already trying to kill Jesus because they felt so very threatened by him. And there's this opening principle here that we glean from watching how Jesus models being a non-anxious presence, meaning he is always present in the midst of the insanity going on around him, but he is non-anxious. And I learned that term out of the counseling world. God's called us to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of everything going on around us, and Jesus models it. And here's this opening principle that I love. While people whisper and the world rages around you, develop your secret place before the Lord. That's what Jesus models for us here. And not just here, but all throughout the New Testament. How many times do you read, and then Jesus withdrew to a lonely place? Or something amazing happens, and Jesus decides to leave everyone behind and go up to a mountain to pray all night. He is developing, and he's maintaining, he's cultivating that secret place between him and his Father. And we are called to do the same thing. I believe we all have a bit of that secret place already intact. Sometimes we refer to it as like our conscience. It's that innermost being, that communing with the voice inside of us. It's not always the Lord, but I remember growing up as a child, probably you had experiences like this. I could sense internally, even things that my parents hadn't taught me when I was about to do something wrong. It's just kind of, it's kind of in your innermost being. I don't know if anyone was like me. I guess I was a terrible kid, but I stole something from the store once. Anybody else? It's a little tiny, thank you. All right, all of us sinners unite. <laughs> I knew it was wrong, but I really wanted that gum. You know what I mean? I had multiple people from first service come up to me and tell me I did the same thing. One guy's come up and said, when I was the same age, I, and I'm kind of guessing, I think I was about four, I took it, 
My parents eventually found out I had it, and you can guess what they made me do. Go back to the clerk and confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, give it back or pay for it. And that's what they made me do. The thing that's amazing about that, though, is though I did not value God's voice in my life yet, I wasn't seeking his voice as a kid. I think of being in elementary school, middle school, and high school. Even when I was running completely in my own direction, I sensed the voice of God in me. Where? In the secret place. And so there's something about learning to cultivate the secret place with the Lord that's going to guide you through all the complexities of life. And that's what Jesus is modeling here. I, w- I would ask you this way. I want you to actually raise your hand on this because I'm so confident about the question. How many of you can sense a voice in your innermost being calling you to more? Right? Almost everyone I talk to, if you're really honest with yourself, there's this stirring for something more. And number two in your notes is an encouragement. Pay less attention to the whispers of people and more attention to the whispers of God. If Jesus was paying attention to the whispers of the people when he was there at the festival, remember it said there was widespread whispering. What if Jesus slipped into being a people pleaser when he showed up at the festival? He would have been an internal mess. And you know what he would not have been able to hear? The voice of his father, right? And so that's why that sense of being a people pleaser, anybody struggle with people pleasing? Probably all of us to a degree. Like, it's Manessa, my little, my <laughs> She's the, I don't know what she's talking about. I love you, sweetie. Now I owe you more money. My rule with my kids is anytime I share a story about them in any sermon, I have to pay them. And I pay them money. And so she's, I just mentioned her name once, so that's $1. And I have a story coming up later. She's, she's raking in the bucks. So the, the heart cry of this beginning is to learn the voice of God in our innermost being and cultivate that. And then reading on in verse 14, it says, not until halfway through the festival, so this is four days in, because it's an eight-day-long festival, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there, it says, were amazed. So they were just, who is this guy? And they said, how did he get such teaching, such learning, without having been taught? And they're kind of demonstrating there how much they don't see the value of what I like to think of as the university of the Spirit. And they are put so much value, we do the same thing in our culture, so much value on the process of learning that culture kind of condones. But I want to just encourage you with this idea. If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you said, God, my life is yours, and you said, Spirit of God, I want your fullness in my life, you are enrolled in the university of the Spirit of God. You are in class all the time under his tutelage. And that means you have exams, you have tests, you have, he pushes you sometimes, sometimes he just wants to encourage you, but you are in that university and that's what Jesus was in. Jesus modeled what it is to be in that university perfectly as an A plus student. None of us are A plus students, by the way, and that's okay. That's why we need the good news of grace that calls us in, but we inherit the A plus grade of Jesus who modeled this perfectly and is therefore teaching with authority in the temple courts to the point that they are in awe. They do not know how this is happening. And his answer starts to give us incredible insight into the more that we long for. He says in verse 16, my teaching is not even mine, he says. It comes from the one who sent me. And he always does this. He's always pointing to his father. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And then he really starts giving us some insights. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain 
personal glory. He's saying anytime someone is living according to their own agenda, speaking what is on their heart alone. Is that your phone, huh, that I'm hearing? What is God trying to say right now? The name, it's actually a phone call. Oh, it's from, uh, it's from Kia. We're trying to buy a van, so maybe... Uh... <laughs> maybe we should go with the Kia. It came... <laughs> There's no way we could have gone with that noise continuing for the next 20 minutes. It's totally fine. Um, keep my bearings back. He says, again, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. Now, here's what I find really fascinating about this in the context of what we're looking at here. We tend to think in our life that personal glory is what will lead to our satisfaction. We might not use that language. Most of you probably aren't saying... I'm seeking personal glory. That's my goal in life. That's my vision. But we tend to think, and our culture reiterates this idea, and we all, we get discipled to some degree by our culture, and we have to undisciple it. We have to unlearn and get discipled in the ways of the kingdom. But our culture certainly teaches, and our human nature teaches, that personal glory will lead to me being accepted. Personal glory is what will lead to me being at peace. Personal glory is the only thing that will fulfill me. It's what will give me joy. But guess what? It doesn't, and whenever you achieve that blank in your life, whatever you put in that personal glory category, you realize we still find ourselves longing for what? More. There's an ache in us for something more, and then he gives us the answer right here. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So the way of the world and the way of the Lord are contrasting. The way of the world is to seek personal glory. The way of the Lord is to seek the glory of the one who sent you. And let me just clarify, John 20, 21, so we'll get to that chapter sometime later this year. Jesus says this to his disciples and to all of us who are his disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So you are one of the sent ones of God, whether you signed up for it or not. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, God's plan for you is that you have been sent somewhere for a purpose, not just ministers, not just preachers, you, anyone in any vocation where God has placed you. Now, he may want to move you in and out of something, that's true, but I want you to just rest in a fact this morning. You have been sent to where you are for a reason, to the people you were around for a reason. Part of the reason is the person you're sitting next to, friends, family, whoever it may be. The people that you rub shoulders with all week, you have been sent. And so part of this more that we long for is you learning that you are not speaking to seek your personal glory, but you are speaking and you are seeking glory of the one who sent you, which is Jesus, who is living to bring glory to the one who sent him, which is the Father, God the Father. And so we are collectively being filled with the Holy Spirit, beautifully intertwined with glorifying the Son, glorifying the Father, and being a part of his kingdom. That's the more that we're longing for. But it begs the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? And one thing is, I want to encourage you with this idea every day, number three, make the intentional shift from seeking personal glory to seeking the glory of God. I believe it's part of our discipleship as followers of Jesus. We have to actually choose daily whose glory are we going to 
seek. What is our life all about? The only path to joy is living a life that seeks the glory of God. And scripture is full of this. We must go down in order to go up. We make less of ourselves and more of the Lord in order to understand everything we are meant to be. True greatness is becoming a servant. Think practically about it. Imagine if you got hired by the most incredible boss of the most incredible company that has ever existed in all of time. Great hire, you're in. And then that boss tells you, here's the vision for the company and here's the plan for you to be a part of that company. And by the way, it's not just for the good of the company, it's for the good of you. This is the vision that will work for your life, it will work for the company, it is going to be amazing. But then you get in it and you fall under deception and we're gonna talk about how deception is part of this in a minute. You fall under the deception of thinking, wait a second, this company's not enough for me. This, this strategy's not enough for me. I need to seek my personal glory. And you start doing things completely your own way, fighting for numero uno, <laughs> fighting to get your own, and it starts to not work. It starts to disorient your life because you are deceived. You would not be living for the glory or the vision of your boss. And we have this master. Jesus is our savior and he is our Lord. We say it a lot. We don't live it as much. We love the savior part, but he's your boss. And you have been brought into the greatest company, which we'll call the kingdom of God. This greatest thing that has ever existed, new heavens, new earth, new you, you get to be a part of it. But somehow we get into that and we're like, yes, Lord, please. And then we get to see it and we're like, personal glory, personal glory, personal glory. Believing it's lies. This isn't gonna fulfill me. This is, this, this is gonna satisfy me. This is gonna be everything. And we get all disoriented and we start to miss the truth. And we miss the priorities of the heart of God. So one practical way to seek the glory of God in your life is to make his priorities your priorities. That's number four. Make his priorities your priorities. I encourage you to sit down with a journal or with some phone notes and just spend time with God and say, God, what are your priorities for my life? What do you want my time to be all about? We don't think of this, but we make value and priority decisions all the time by how we spend every single day. The older we get, we usually start to value that time a little bit more and we start thinking, gosh, I don't wanna spin my wheels with all, things, all these things over here. Lord, how do I live into your priorities? And a few of them are just straight out of scripture. Uh, I, I use the 85-10-5 principle all the time to teach this. You've probably heard me say it, but I'll share it again. 85% of what you do with your time could be done by someone else. 10% of what you do with your time could be done by someone else with a lot of training. Only 5%, and I would, I would bet based on scripture, that within this 5% are the, the heart of God's priorities for your life. Only that 5% are the things that you are the only person on the planet equipped to do. And the things that are in the 5% is your relationship with God. So if you're gonna prioritize his priorities, you're gonna say, man, my life is about knowing God. My life is about learning his voice, saying yes to him. My highest calling in life, Paul said, I count everything else, all my achievements, as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. That is your highest calling. And it's really good news because you're in your highest calling now. And guess what? You can't delegate someone else to know God for you. That's why it's in the 5%. And then think of your family, your circle of loved ones. 
In my case, I'm the only one ever, hopefully, that will be a husband to my wife. It's in that 5%. My daughter, Nessa, is sitting here. I'm the only dad Nessa will ever have. It's in my 5%. It's part of God's assignment, his priority for my life. So you start to take those priorities. Another one would be what God has specifically gifted you with and assigned you to. Like without you and your gifts and your obedience before God, there's something that God wants to do in the world that misses your fingerprint as being a part of it. Just this week, a few examples of how we all get to be a part of this, because it doesn't mean we all have to become ministers. I, I was with an entrepreneur this week who's newer in the church, and I loved hearing his heart of how he builds companies, how he networks. God's given him a gift of generating income and, and, and bringing people together, and he uses it for the sake of the kingdom of God. I met with a teacher this week who has a heart for imparting wisdom to students. Um, He substitute teaches right here in some of our local schools. I met with a social worker this week who works in the the secular market but serves the underserved in Jesus' name and does beautiful work. I met with a contractor who has that heart, a home developer, a worship leader, and it's all described in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? This is the more that we long for. It's learning to actually live into this. During worship, my daughter Nessa is sitting here, and this is where she's going to earn some more money. She's here because she was a little under the weather earlier this week. She's better, but she's still tired, so she's not up with the kids. She's laying here with us. But during worship, she took um, one of the Easter invites. This is what kids do with these things. They just take them and draw pictures on them. And she, she said, Dad, how do you spell your name? Because she's practicing cursive right now, and she writes her name everywhere. And so she, I said N-A-T-H-A-N. She wrote my name in cursive on the back of one of these cards. And it's pretty good cursive. And it delighted my heart because I'm her dad. And I love seeing my six-year-old who's learning cursive write my name. This would be, that would be, let me see, does she have it right there? This would be the greatest treasure. Yeah, that's it. So check this out. It says Nessa about six times, but then it also says Nathan right there. (laughs) Oh, I'm on there twice. Nathan, Nathan. I looked at this and I thought, man, This delights me way more than paying a thousand bucks for the greatest calligrapher of all time to write my name. I could care less. But this is everything to me, heart of a father. When you think about glorifying God and how that's part of the more that we're created for, doing it with a heart unto him, like what Nessa just did to me, is what delights his heart. And it's what invites you into the kind of satisfaction and joy and fulfillment that you're created for. So, and look at the other scripture, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I was a worship pastor for a lot of years, and sometimes in worship ministry, you need to have a measure of excellence or else it's distracting, but it's not about getting the best people on stage. It's about getting a people with a heart that is broken and alive before God on stage. Like a a person singing that could be the greatest trained vocalist of all time that has a heart full of haughtiness is not pleasing to the heart of God. And it doesn't usher us into the presence of God. But someone coming up with a very average voice. Now, all of our singers are really great. I'm not commenting on those singers. Someone coming up with a really average voice that God is really called to do it, that has a heart for God and a heart for living for the glory of God. God can blow a room open when they just sing five notes. And that's the same as my daughter writing my name in cursive. Dad, check this out. And it delights my heart. And I think that if we can reframe everything that we do in our life through the lens of, wait a second, when I do this for the glory of God, it delights the heart of my father. 
It brings a different kind of meaning to life. It brings a different kind of fulfillment, a different kind of peace. Then Jesus goes on to confront them. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps it. And he's, he's bringing some correction in this portion of the conversation to the criticism that the spiritual leaders of the day gave to Jesus when he healed someone on the Sabbath. We talked about it like a month ago. It was a crippled person. Jesus healed them. But according to the tradition of the law, in other words, the interpretation of the law, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. And so these, these religious leaders missed the miracle and just got angry at Jesus. And so he's, he's challenging them. And he's saying, why are you trying to kill me? And they're saying, you're demon-possessed. We're not trying to kill you. What are you talking about? But he's asking them the question, why are you trying to kill me? Not because he really needs to know. He already knows what's developing in their heart. He's asking to try to encourage them to search and know what's in their own heart. These people who just said, who's trying to kill you? Who's trying to kill you are the same ones who in just six months from this story are yelling, crucify him. So he's helping them. He's trying to help them see what is in them. Why are they resisting Jesus and his word so very much? Are you guys tracking with me? And so then he explains it to them. I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So he's just pointing out how they've missed the intention of the law and entirely missed God's heart. And he encapsulates this conversation with this powerful Sentence. Now stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Number five, God calls us to see beyond appearances and to walk in the truth of the Spirit. What I think is really important for us to notice here is that it is possible for us to be deceived by appearances. Think about it. Look at me for a second. All of our eyes that are connecting right now if we're just seeing with these natural eyes and we're not asking God to give us discernment in the spirit, what's actually happening, the truth behind the thing we're seeing on the surface, we will get deceived by what these eyes are telling us. It's 100% true. It's confirmed all throughout scripture. I, this, it's so likely for us to be a little bit deceived that I encourage people to think, I'm probably a little bit deceived about something right now. Just have the humility to say that. It's part of having a humble theology, a humble view of our life. I don't think for any second, even me as a pastor who's trained and studied and, and does all this stuff, I'm not under any kind of illusion that my idea about everything is the right idea. I have certain convictions that I feel very unwavering about, but all the little nuances of life and the millions of things going on, my goodness. You're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus. Here's what's sad about it, though. If we're not aware that appearances can be deceiving us, we will start to judge incorrectly everything that we see. And we will miss things like the healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath. And instead of celebrating the wonder and the glory of God, we will be angry and accusatory to whoever is around us. And I think this applies into the difference between personal glory and God's glory as well. If we're being deceived by mere appearances when it comes to seeking personal glory, we're gonna entirely miss the richness of God's glory that he's called to live us, that he's called us to live in the day-to-day -day reality of our life. 
And rather than enjoying the wonder of the miracle, the wonder of the glory, we become like those religious leaders and we become judgmental, become critical, we become bitter. We start to resist Jesus in our life rather than welcome it. So the principle is this, don't get deceived by mere appearances and miss the truth and wonder of the glory of God. God is working all throughout the world in ways that we can't imagine and that we could possibly miss due to the man-made categories that we put on it. As the worship team comes back up, I wanna close, well, and let me give you principle seven before I share this story. The closing question is this, are you ready for the adventure of living for the glory of God? And you might just need to make the decision today, wait a second, this more that I am created for, this more that I long for, I wanna step further into that reality, God, and I wanna actually move the dial in my life further away from seeking personal glory and more towards seeking the glory of God. You might need to actually make that decision. You could have said yes to Jesus years ago, but got slipped back more and more into personal glory, personal glory, this is my hope, this is my joy, this is my vision, this is everything I'm trying to do. And God's like, nope, not gonna work. Come back to the glory of God. Come back to it. But you have to actually choose that. You have to say, God, I wanna live for your glory. I, just a quick personal story to close. I wasn't sure if I would share this today, but I'm going to. This November, I'll turn 40. I know you're amazed. You thought I was a 27-year-old young man. <laughs> my wife makes fun of me because I used to always get, my goodness, you, you look so much younger than you are. And now when people find out I'm 40, they don't bat an eye. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like settling right into it. Um, I'm excited about turning 40. I'm and in my mind, it is, it's the metaphorical shift into the second half of life, right? Um, and so I, I'm, a, I'm a deeply reflective person, kind of to a fault, actually. And so I've already been like every day, all right, God, I'm about to turn 40, and I'm still like six months away. I'm like, God, what does this mean? What are you speaking to me? What's the second half of, my, half of my life supposed to look like? God, lead me in your ways. No, no, no. And uh, I really feel like God gave me this one thing, and it's, it's tied to my vision, actually. I've always had good vision. It's been 2020 my whole life. But this year, for the first time, just in the last month, I can feel my vision going bad, especially my right eye. Like, I can look around, you're all blurry to me right now. And uh, that's new to me, so I'm going to have to go to an eye appointment. But it's been really beautiful because I feel like God is using that in my life and speaking this idea to me. I feel like he is really saying to me, Nathan, for your second half of life, I'm going to give you new lenses through which to see all of life, all of the world. Your life's going to be that different in second half of life. And a big part of it for me is around this heart. Like I know God is inviting me, and this is true of all of us, to be settled as one who lives only for the glory of God. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to, for that to be the reality of your heart, where you find the deepest rest, where you find peace, where you find all of your identity. And I know I want that for me. I want it for you. None of us ever arrive in this. I was talking to Donna Tatum after first service, and she is, um, I think she must be mid-80s, been serving the Lord her whole life, very, very sanctified, one of the most sanctified people I've ever known in my life. And I said, Miss Donna, um, do you completely live for the glory of God, or is personal glory still mixed in there a little bit? And she was like, she made this hilarious face, and she was like, nope, I'm still totally messed up. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and that's the truth. I believe it's a lifelong process that we don't fully realize until the other side of heaven. Jesus lived in the reality of it fully on this side of heaven. That's why he was the sinless one who went before us. 
So we inherit it through Jesus in its entirety. But the reality of our hearts is always playing catch up to that. We're growing into who God has called us to be. It's like our pastoral care pastor says, Rob Rates. He always says, you know, you wish when, when you first meet God, he would just zap you real quick and all of a sudden you're just like Jesus. But it's not at all what the process is like. It is daily, annual, decade by decade, sanctification process. Yeah. And I would submit that this issue here is one of the core pieces of sanctification. Who would be with me and say, I want to see my life through the lenses of living for the glory of God much more than I do now? Probably most of us would say that. That's my prayer, and that's what we're going to close with today. And we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing this song that says, I'll make room for you. There's this beautiful connection with this song, because when we're filled up with all of our personal glory, it's like, there's not even room for the glory of God in my life. My life's all about me. But then when we, when we empty of ourselves of personal glory, we say, God, I want my life to be all about your glory. We make room for him. So we're going to sing this song. We're going to take communion. If you could take a, take a packet. Everyone is invited. If you don't have one and would like to take it, raise your hand. Cameron will bring one to you right now. The way we think of this here is communion is open to everyone, but if you take it, you're declaring, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And if you take it today, it's going to be part of our response to this message. You're saying, I want to live for the glory of God. I want to respond to the more that I am actually created for and do everything under the glory of God. Let's open up the top part of it. In 1 Corinthians 11, 24, it says, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And he commanded us, do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead and take the bread in your hand. This is representative of the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you. Can we just pause just to say thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us so that our body could be whole, so that our life could be whole. It's so incredible the way that you chose to bring salvation to this world. You took upon yourself shame and guilt, humiliation, the worst parts of us, the things we're most scared of being exposed. You take all on yourself the worst choices, the worst decisions, the ugliest part, the ugliest thoughts we've ever had, the ugliest realities we've ever experienced, the actual evil that's in the world, the actual evil. You've said, I'm gonna bear this all on my back. And I'm gonna be publicly humiliated and shamed for it. And I'm going to overcome it. Thank you, Jesus. We remember as we eat this bread. Let's eat, church. Then in the next verse, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And I want to do something that's just coming to me right now. Before we drink it, while we just hold it, Rochelle and Kirsten, can you just play instrumentally for a moment? But before you start with the violin, Kirsten, I want you to close your eyes with me, church. Listen. We're just going to sit for 30 seconds with the music. Hear this melody as God's love song over your life. This is a love song from the heart of God to you. I believe it with everything that's in me. And it's why he is so very willing to go to the most extreme measure for your salvation. 
to be with you. He says, I will shed every drop of my blood. I will lay down every part of my life. I will leave the glory of the highest throne of all of time, and I will make myself nothing for you. And I will then be committed to you and show you how to live. He loves you so very much. Let me pray this over you and we'll be dismissed. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, His name we pray. Amen. Love you guys very much. Have a great rest of your day.